This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Emily Jacobs. I'm a professor in psychological and brain sciences here at UCSB, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Ian Cheney and Sharon Shattuck, the co-directors and co-producers of Picture a Scientist. Ian and Sharon, welcome. Thanks. Hi, thanks for having us. So you are both incredibly accomplished documentary filmmakers. Ian, you've won a Peabody, you've been nominated for an Emmy. Um, you've completed nine feature films, including the critically acclaimed King Corn. Sharon, you're an Emmy-nominated filmmaker whose feature film from this day forward was a New York Times critics pick. And your work can be found on Netflix, National Geographic, Radio Lab, and countless other mainstream outlets. But what our audience may not realize is that both of you have science backgrounds as well. Um, Sharon, you have a degree in environmental science. You did field work in Panama on forest ecology. Uh, Ian, you have a degree in environmental management and then spent time at MIT as a uh, night science journalism fellow. So was your background in science part of what drew you to the story? And did the stories you uncovered in this film shape how you think back on your time in the sciences? Thanks, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so my background um, is in forest ecology and I, I've always kind of missed science like when I'm making films, like I, and I, I really appreciate whenever there's a moment where I can actually use science in filmmaking or like connect with scientists. Um, so that's, that was something that I wanted to do with this project, but it wasn't like, I didn't have an experience in my time as a forest ecologist that would translate directly to like the experiences of the women in this film. Um, but I did notice like, as I was talking with the women about their science and, you know, getting excited and, you know, talking about their work, um, I did sort of also think back to my own experience and wonder like, if I could have had an experience like they did, like a negative experience, um, possibly down the line. Because a, a lot of them said that uh, like when they first started out and when they were undergrads, they were, everything was great <laughs> and it was just smooth sailing. And it wasn't until they started to kind of move up the, the ladder, you know, and become more of a competitor to, to you know, other men in their field um, that they noticed that things started to get difficult for them. So that's something kind of, you know, in the back of my mind the whole time. So, Ian, I don't know if you had anything to add to that. Um, oh, I, I can, but we can, we, we can, let's, 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 let's move on. Okay. <laughs> um, so Picture a Scientist is not your first rodeo. Um, you two must have a laundry list of other ideas you want to pursue in documentary film. So tell us a little bit about the etiology of the film. You know, why this story? Why now? Our, our, our journey with this film really began with, with Nancy Hopkins, the, um, the professor at MIT who, who kind of banded together with her colleagues, as, as you hopefully saw in the film. Um, uh, the head of the MIT press, Amy Brand, who became our executive producer on the film, reached out about this um, this story that Amy had been learning about of what unfolded in the nineties. And she, you know, she said, this would make pretty, a pretty cool film. Um, and we completely agreed and, and, and loved meeting Nancy and were so kind of inspired by what she had done. And so the, the, and we're kind of fascinated also by her, by her science. And so it, from the start, I think it became this, this opportunity to make a science film, but also make a film about the culture of science, you know, and really that, that, that to some extent reflects back the broader society. Um, so that seemed like a daunting challenge uh, and therefore kind of an exciting journey to go on. Um, and I think one that we both personally sensed would, would change us as well. Um, and those are always hard films to, to, to pass up. Um, so the, the journey began with Nancy and that, you know, I think it was probably Nancy who even encouraged us from the beginning to, to not confine the story to, to MIT in the 90s, you know. This was sort of 20 years later, we were doing most of our shooting. So 
how have things changed since then? What's the perspective of, of scientists who are who are um, who are in the fray right now? So we we embarked on a I don't know three four <laughs> six month kind of research and development phase where we talked to a, a number of people, um, including you, I think Emily at some point during this uh, <laughs> gave us wonderful advice and, and you know and uh, and tried to just sort of wrap our heads around. How to make a film about um, about um, about Nancy's story and the kind of constellation of stories related to it, and there really are so many. Yeah. So that's that's how we came upon uh, Jane Willenbring and, and Rachel Burks, and from there landed on on a you know a pretty that's a pretty kind of classic structure for a documentary to follow three characters sort of piece by piece through through their stories, um, bringing you up to the present day. So. So speaking of the present day, um, I want to touch on several current events that, that I feel really amplify the core messages of this film. Um, so the first and, and maybe most gratuitous case is the global pandemic. On Tuesday, the New York Times ran an article on how the virus is yet another setback for women in academia, since caregiving duties place a disproportionate burden on women, um, forcing them out of the lab and threatening the future of their academic career. As the economist Claudia Golden said, quote, inequities that existed before are now on steroids. So how has the timing of this film, which was released theatrically June 12th, how is it, did that timing alter its reception? Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I guess we don't have a control because we, we only have this weird COVID time for this particular movie. But we do have, you know, we have other films that we've released in normal years, you know, where you have the festival premiere and, you know, everybody comes together in a room and then we get to, you know, go to different festivals and, in you know, go to California and do screenings in person. <laughs> um, and, and that's, yeah, that's uh, obviously missed. I think we're, we're definitely missing human, con you know, kind of interaction in person. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that I think, I mean, I don't know. So I don't know what it is about this mix of COVID and this particular film, but we are getting a lot of uh, interest and in, in like a lot of, especially in the scientific community, um, and I think part of that is that this is a hard topic to talk about. And it's pretty extraordinary that women, like the women who are appearing in our film are willing to talk about, you know, their experiences on a personal level um, with discrimination and gender bias and sexual harassment. And that's like, I think scientists especially recognize that that's really rare and it's still really hard to talk about um, and it's not common. So I don't know. I think that that might be part of it. It's some sort of weird magic mix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't quite figure it out. Perfect, beautiful storm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it does, it's pretty crazy. Like the, the um, interest and the requests uh, for screenings and it, it's just like off the charts compared to the previous films we've done. Wow. I'm so excited to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> such an important topic. Um, you know, the other big news for women in science um, is that the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was just awarded to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for developing a method for genome editing. <laughs> um, the backstory is that their contribution to CRISPR was called into question um, by scientists at MIT who tried to rewrite the narrative of CRISPR um, by completely writing these women out of the story and claiming their own dominance. This has happened to women for centuries and in all disciplines. So to me, yesterday's Nobel feels, the, the news really sort of feels like a win and not just for women, but for objective history, right? It's a win for faithfully recognizing the critical contributions of the scientists who did the work, not the scientists with the loudest bullhorn. So given what you've learned from studying the history of women in science, do you think we're starting to see real structural change or is it yet to come? Oh, <clears throat> well, I, I think both. I, I, it feels like the fair answer. Um, I, think, I think we are, um, and I, I say that as somebody who's asked that question of a lot of people, um, a lot of people who have, um, you know, kind of been in the trenches like Nancy Hopkins or who, who have really looked back across, you know, several centuries of 
of women kind of banging at the door of science and saying like, this is, not, you know, either let us in or let, let us have an equal opportunity here. And um, I think, uh, I, I really think the answer has been a bit of both. It does feel like um, this is, uh, this is a time when, um, I mean, you know, maybe men are kind of being forced to listen or like can't, can't, can't ignore this anymore um, in the best of ways. Like this mm -hmm. is just, um, and, or, or are ready to listen. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly plenty of men who aren't ready to listen for sure too, but, um, but it feels like there is an opportunity for real structural change. I think a lot of it also comes comes in the context of, of a you know a national conversation about about race. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of um, you know uh, a lot of people trying to figure out what did somebody say to me at some point on, on some Zoom call. She said she said a lot of us are just trying to figure out how to be better people right now. Um, which you know is a crazy oversimplification of everything, but I think it was a little bit of a nod to the fact that I think a lot of people are are um, are waking up, um, and so it, in that sense, also I think this is a time when institutions are are are, are listening and, yeah. and saying yes, okay, let's let's not just tick a few boxes here. Let's let's actually maybe think about some structural change. And there's a, you know, obviously an incredible amount of inertia behind the inertia of like patriarchy and white supremacy and all these kind of baked in problems in our society. So those don't change overnight. Um, and that's, I think the second part of this, which is just, we can't expect this stuff to uh, change overnight. We, we can't expect these problems to go away overnight. And I think, um, I think Kate Clancy, who, who's in our film, um, she had a really good op-ed a few weeks ago that, that flagged this. She said, look, solutions that are trying to kind of make these problems go away so we can just go get back to our work, you know, tomorrow, like those aren't, those aren't really listening to the deep problems that we have to deal with. So, well, so related to that, then, um, according to a report issued in uh, Nature last year, half of all U.S. female scientists leave uh, full-time science after having their first child. To be clear, women are not leaving science because they're not good enough for the job, but they may be leaving because the job is not good enough for them. Mm. What are the chances that a major scientific breakthrough is going to occur when you cut your pool of highly trained scientists in half, right? That's one of the, the themes of your film is asking that question. So in the process of making this film and speaking with the leaders in the gender equity movement, what did you discover were some of the most effective ways of retaining women in STEM? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I'm, you know, I will start by saying I'm not an expert <laughs> at all. Um, but I, you know, we did, we, we talked with um, a lot of experts about this and they, it seems like, I mean, from what I can gather from talking with, um, we talked with Sapna Cherian at the University of Washington um, about this a lot. She's a social scientist and she, she was saying, you know, it's, there's sort of like, there's two, there's like the top down, you know, change from the top down from getting your, the people at the top of your institutions to buy in and recognize that this is a real problem that needs to be solved. Um, by like keeping track of people's salaries and making sure that like as you're recruiting like actively recruiting outside of the pool that you might typically go to and you know asking we want specifically women of color we were looking for you know like um, minorities like trying to find you know people um, like at across institutions because there are a lot of really good people that are that are typically kind of overlooked or missed um, so there's that sort of top down um, approach, but then there's also this bottom up, um, like being able to like working within a lab on just a really an individual level, um, teaching bystander intervention, which is really uh, apparent, you know, apparently it's a really effective tool just to practice like in your lab um, or in your office, like how, how can you speak up if you see somebody being ignored 
or or if you're you know if for instance in in Jane Willenbring's situation um her friend Adam Lewis uh he saw that she was being mistreated by her advisor but she he didn't he was like oh I don't know I think she's got it like she's she's so tough she you know she's fine like he's a jerk but she's going to be okay and um and she she was okay but he really he could have done more and I think he he realized later on that he could have done more and he regretted how he'd handled it and so just practicing those situations in like a like a safe environment where you can learn how to kind of step up and and you know ask if you need you know, do you need help do you want my help can I do anything for you even if it's just like hey this really sucks I'm so sorry um yeah. so that those are like little things I think um Dr. Mazarin Banaji, who we featured in our film, uh, she has some other interventions. She likes to just hang up photos of women doing jobs that are stereotypically male, like in her office. Yeah. And I think that's such a cool idea. And and um, actually, Sapna Cherian also had a, she did a study with computer science where they had like, it was this room and they, they brought in these students to kind of assess how interested they would be in, you know, going into computer science as a field. And in some, um, in some instances, the room was like this kind of trashed, like, <laughs> like it had like empty cans and like pizza boxes and, and, you know, the photos were like sexy women in bikinis or whatever. Um, I don't know. I'm just making that up. But, but, you know, that was like for half of the participants and then the other half would come in and it would just be a clean, like normal office with like photos of like mountains and, you know, whatever nature. And um, in the second, in the latter instance, more women said that they were open to going into a field and, you know, going into computer science because the environment just seemed like, oh, like I could, I could be here. So it's just, it's interesting how these like you know, environmental factors, like all these little cues will just kind of inform you whether you are allowed to be in that room or whether you, you know, feel like you could be there. Yeah, so. I remember I, I took a class, um, I was lucky enough to take a class with Dr. Banaji, and I just remember oh, cool. one of the things um, mentioning is just playing around with her identity. Um, you know, she's an Indian, uh, Indian American, she's a woman, she's a scientist, and making a conscious effort of you know, emphasizing the thing that was not dominant in whatever setting she was at that particular time. Is it just a way of playing around with those, you know, assumptions? And I thought I, that always really stuck with me. So um, cool. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the other news to land uh, this week is the announcement that Princeton University agreed to pay $1.2 million um, essentially in reparations to female professors after an investigation by the U.S. Labor Department showing systemic gender bias in university salaries. What struck me about the announcement is that Princeton admits no wrongdoing uh, in the deal and says differences in salary reflect historical differences in base salaries between departments or differences in the experiences of women versus men when they were hired. What do you think Nancy Hopkins would say to all that? <laughs> we need her here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it, it's. I mean, you know, I have no idea what Nancy would say. Something really smart. She, you know, she. I think one of the things she she did talk to us about a lot was how much of a. Um, we were kind of conflicted about this in our storytelling because she wanted to give a you know a lot of credit to um, the male you know president and provost and dean. Of MIT, she said, "Look, it was a huge deal that they stepped up, mm -hmm. and and kind of said, yeah, this is this is discrimination, um, and we've you know, and we need to fix it. We've screwed this up, um, and so you know, she she really considered them heroes, and you know, and, and fair enough. But I think you know, so we sort of struggled with like, we don't want to have like this whole movie and then have a bunch of guys be the, be the heroes. Like, mm -hmm. um, that's not the point. Um, but it's part of the point that." Um, that they didn't miss an opportunity to do the right thing. Um, and that's probably what, what one could say about the Princeton situation is you, you probably missed an opportunity to make some real leaps forward. Um, and, so as, yeah. as a follow-up to that then, um, as you know, in science, data is our currency. 
It's what we live and breathe. And Nancy Hopkins' story tells us that data is also part of the solution uh, to correcting systemic bias in academia. So, you know, posing a question that you've, I think, posed to us, um, but what type of data would be most effective uh, for showing inequality if it's there? What role can professional societies play in gathering and publishing these data? And finally, you know, I commend our own University of California system for making the salary of every employee public, which is a first step. Mm -hmm. But how do we push universities to use these data to implement policies that ensure an equitable distribution of resources from lab space to, to starting salaries? And even further, how do we implement policies to ensure equity in service? Great question. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be the one to, to answer that very thoroughly. Um, I, I think from what we talked about, like the, with the different women in the film um, and the different experts in the film, I mean, it definitely seems like it, it, like the data you can gather really depends on your discipline, you know? So like, like for, for instance, you know, some people we talk to, if they're just working in computer science and they're just, you know, working on with, um, you know, programs online, statistical programs, or I don't know what they're doing. I'm just making this up right now. But, um, you know, it's different than having lab space, like you don't have physical lab space. So you can't, like in Nancy Hopkins case, she was like, this is very clearly, there's an inequity here, I don't have as much lab space as my colleagues. And so she would go around and she's taking a tape measure, and she's actually physically measuring the floor plan of the different labs. Um, but I don't think that that, it, it doesn't equate, you know, for every discipline. Um, if you don't have a lab, obviously, <laughs> um, salary definitely seems like a, a good indicator. And it, that seems like across, like, you know, I'm even thinking outside of science when I'm thinking about media, um, it's really helpful to be able to compare salaries and just talk about that stuff. And it's also really hard to find salary data for, for if it's not a public, you know, situation, um, and, and there, yeah, anyway, I can go on about that, but, um, but yeah, salary seems like a good one. I'm, I don't know, like, uh, I don't, Ian, do you, or Emily, do you, do you think of other, um, types of data that could be helpful here? I'm really not one sure. Of, one yeah. of the, um, I mean, it reminds me of, I, I think we did ask this question to, um, to Dr. Clancy, to Kate Clancy. And she said, she's like, look, there's there's more than enough data already like that's that's like mm. sure we can get, get gather more data like and we will and we we should and 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 because you know we're scientists we, we will we will continue to gather that data but that's you know the problem is people aren't listening to it the, the problem is people aren't acting on it the problem is people mm. people don't see what what could be better if we if we change these institutions, if we change the culture of these institutions, and that and that that relates to the fact that that some of the change, as, as Sharon I think was was alluding to in, in a previous question, is um, you know feels somewhat intangible. You know how how we treat people, how we how we how we uh, how we decorate our labs, you know, these things that, that you know, you could imagine seem trivial, but are, are actually make a measurable difference. So, and really add up. So like, how do you, um, how do you track those changes? How do you move those? How do you, how do you shift that culture? You know, and that's part of the reason we, I think felt we had, um, you know, we kind of had a role here because I think storytelling is, is a part of that. It's helping people reflect on themselves. You know, I think through stories, we, we start to, I mean, it sort of sounds cliche, but I think, you know, we start to see, see ourselves in other people's shoes. You know, our, our empathy is activated. We start to say, oh yeah, what, what would it be like to be Nancy Hopkins realizing she can't even get the, the lab space for her zebrafish? Like, what does that, what does that feel like? Okay. Data is a big, big part of it, but also if, you know, it's it's listening to people. It's it's seeing the world from other people's perspective, imagining that they have anyway. So that's yeah. that's I think a big part of the shift too. You, know, you also have a lot of powerful names behind this film. You mentioned Amy Brand was an executive producer on the film. She's director of the MIT Press. Have you talked about what policies that she or other leaders in publishing could implement or? No, that what a great idea. A um, yeah. we, we never bothered Amy about her organization. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, I mean, I will say it, it, it like, it, it definitely made us think a lot about, um, I mean, you know, filmmaking has certainly had its, its, its me too moment and, and mm -hmm. continues to. And I think, um, I think Sharon and I have thought a lot about the, the structures that we've found ourselves in, you know, like what is, what has enabled me to kind of make, you know, make the films I've made and, you know, in what ways has, um, Sharon, because she's a woman, been, you know, been shut out of some of those opportunities, you know, I mean, it, 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 it sets your head spinning. And I think that's, that's really good. It's really important, um, to start to unpack, um, you know, while still standing on some solid ground, so we don't all lose our minds completely, but, you know, because we, <laughs> yeah. we need to find solutions, yeah. but, you know, I, I think that's, that's been a really powerful part of the process, but we haven't bothered our executive producer. It's an interesting idea. <laughs> so at some point in the film, yeah, <laughs> um, at some point in the film, you discuss how biases that impede women's um, access in STEM isn't just about the cost to women, it's about the cost to the world. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a big, it's something that uh, like once, I, I think it was very early on, you know, as we were researching the project, we started to think about the the cost of like what science is losing and like what society is losing when women who have been trained, who have, you know, money has been invested in their careers and their, um, their talent, uh, you know, their, their talent has been cultivated and then because of, you know, who knows, like because of a lack of childcare or because of feeling like they don't belong or they're not really welcome in the lab or whatever it is, um, they decide to go in a different direction and they leave and, you know, they change careers. And we actually featured a woman like this in the film um, who's anonymous, who, who was, I mean, she's brilliant and she absolutely, she wanted to apply for the astronaut program and that was her goal. And she, did her flight training and she had, you know, done all of the requirements along the way. And the last requirement was getting a PhD. And, um, and she was pushed out by her advisor who, who was, I mean, I don't know what his deal was. I think he's threatened by women or hates women or something. I don't really know. Um, but, but yeah, she, she left. And I just, you know, like in the abstract, you can think about like, oh, what does science lose? And I think there have even been studies that sort of try to quantify this, like in, in money, like the amount of time and, and money that's been invested in these different, these classes and, you know, training and all that. But, um, but when you actually talk to a person who's left, <laughs> um, who was so brilliant, I, I was like trying not to cry when I was doing that interview, you know, it was just so hard. And, and she's fine. And she's gone on and she's got a great career um, now. But she misses, um, she misses geology all the time. And she, she was getting teary eyed talking about it. Um, just, you know, and she, she goes out on the weekend and she'll do just like community geology classes, you know, um, because she loves it. And, and so that's that kind of loss of like brilliant people who, and like what could have been, um, I think we, we thought about that all the time, you know, while we are making this film and I don't think I'm ever going to stop thinking about it now. Yeah. So um, at the end of one of my favorite uh, books, Middlemarch by George Eliot, uh, she writes, quote, the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Hmm. The acts of bravery that Nancy Hopkins and Rachel Burks and Jane Willenbring show was profound. Um, when Willenbring decides to take on Marshawn, she's doing it for her daughter. She's doing it for all of us that come after her. When Burks decides that she's no longer going to describe, uh, ascribe to male modalities of power, but instead she's going to be herself in all her glory, that's a quiet and incredibly powerful act. So do you think, um, and, and maybe you've alluded this to this already, but um, that your film shows us that progress doesn't happen exclusively through grand public gestures, but also in the accumulation of, of small everyday acts. Hmm. That's really nicely said. And um, 
And I, I, I would love for that to be, I think we would love for that to be the, uh, one of the takeaways of this film. Um, it's complicated to share the stories of heroes because on the one hand, as you said, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. Um, you know, that you know, Nancy became, uh, Nancy Hopkins became a real public figure and became very much, you know, a hero in, in, in the story of, of making science more equitable and, and open to everyone. Um, on the other hand, you don't want to say that we, we just need to rely on heroes. So, and I think that's, that's what you're getting at here is that just as that, that iceberg, you know, in the film is, is, is mostly made up of, of microaggressions and everyday slights and these, you know, almost invisible to the perpetrator um, acts of, of indecency and disrespect, you know, so too, like are, are the solutions made up of tiny everyday acts. And um, I think that's, that's, that's an opportunity because it means everybody can and should chip in and participate. Um, it's also a challenge because it means it's in the air we breathe. Um, and you kind of can't leave any stone unturned in terms of, or you kind of can't stop thinking about it if, if, if you really want change to happen. There's not a few boxes you can check of like, okay, I did my, I went to my, my, you know, DEI training and now I'm, now I'm good. I can, I can go back to being a, a jerk to everyone around me. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. It, it, it means that these everyday acts uh, um, that kind of form the fabric of a place, a, you know, the, the place of science really matter. You know, and to that point, um, towards the end of the film, Hopkins says she isn't sure whether she'd go through with this all again, which is a heartbreaking confession, right? But she didn't ask to spend countless hours advocating for what she should have been given automatically. She just wanted the freedom to do what she loved, which is science. So how do we keep our foot on the gas towards equity in science but remove the burden from women and people of color from correcting structural biases that they had no part of building in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I, I think, um, hmm, how do you, I mean, it's definitely something we feel strongly, you know, you don't, like it change, the burden of changing a system shouldn't be on the people who are oppressed by it. Um, Obviously, it seems like, <laughs> but at the same time, is. I mean, so often it is. Yeah, it's like so often, you know, you you have a, like even you know within a university, it'll be like, okay, well, you're you're the woman, or you're you're a woman in this department, so you're going to be in charge of gender equity and like your you know gender or inclusion or whatever. Um, and it's obviously it's something that we we care about you know and you want to like facilitate but it also it like it seems like the most successful examples that we've seen have been from um from men in the system also stepping up and and participating and being part of that you know being good allies <laughs> um and and like really what happened with MIT is because the university president uh, president and the um the provosts like people people really uh, they're, they're all scientists too. And they saw the data and they, they believed it and they, they believed the women, you know? Um, and then that's even interestingly in our film, we, um, we saw that Bob Brown, who's now a president at Boston university was from MIT. And so it's interesting how those little ripples, like your experiences can kind of add up and they can, um, lead to something bigger. And, um, so yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know how to, to, to change that. I don't think that the burden should be on the oppressed. Um, but I don't, I don't have, you know, I, I think that like building systems where you're actively paying attention and, um, and not like Nancy says this a lot, like you can't sit back and say, Oh, time is going to fix this. Like it's mm -hmm. going to be better in 10 years just because our culture is changing. And that might be, that may be true to some extent, but um, it's not, 
like what happened at MIT is that there were people who were actively working on recruitment and keeping track of salaries. And whenever that, you can see the change in the number of women faculty um, on staff. And then when a person left, the change kind of flattened out again. Hmm. And so there, there were fewer, you know, women and it plateaued. Um, it didn't continue to rise. And so there, there is like, you can really track it to a person, like individual people. Um, so there is something to be said for like keeping on this problem and, and being, you know, keeping track of it. Um, yeah. Okay, well, on a lighter note, <laughs> um, just a few more questions. Um, so Sharon, you did the animations for the film, um, which are so great, and um, uh, a fun nod to the title of the film and to its namesake, the famous Draw Scientist study. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the animation process and how you used animation to propel the story? Yeah, so so we, we came up with the, um, the style of the animations from and we we had a um, outside animation company actually build them but but we came up with the style of it because we were really we both love like vintage stuff <laughs> in general and and like vintage science textbooks um we're both just really into that kind of aesthetic um and so we ended up like i think i was on like ebay or something ian do you remember <laughs> where i i like found this there was like this, um, a bunch of these weird like science textbooks. And I thought that they were like actual hardcover books. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. They're only like 50 bucks. And there's like 20 of them. Like we have to order these and use these for our animations. <laughs> and so, so like we ordered all of these things and then they showed up in our office and it was like, they were like little like flimsy magazines from like <laughs> the 70s or something. Like they weren't books, you know, they were just like, right. like. And, and it was uh, all men. It was like, I mean, that was the other thing. It was like, it was the perfect like parallel to our story. Cause it was like, you know, all, all yeah. The, I mean, yeah, we didn't actually use, you know, couldn't quite like license the use of those actual textbooks, but we were, yeah, Sharon like built this amazing style from them and it was you know because we thought like maybe it would kind of conjure that world that we all sort of know like oh yeah it's sort of like yeah it used to just be kind of the old boys you know here's a man you know hitting a hitting a cliff face with a with a hammer here's a, oh look here's <laughs> yeah. another man like down at the bottom of the sea He's like got a oh, petri like, dish or yeah, yeah. <laughs> that giving a lecture it's another man you know and it's, it's like this kind of iconography was yeah and that and you know not anyway i didn't interrupt you no it's no keep going yeah it, it was really funny how how stark it was that we were yeah. just like, whoa, <laughs> it's all guys. Like there wasn't a single, I think there maybe was one woman. There was one that had like a woman as a flight attendant. Oh, Do you remember that one? It was like this one had all these male scientists and then there was like one woman as a flight attendant in one of them. And then there were just a couple other women, but they were like assistants or whatever, you know, holding the clipboard. Course, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And it was a way of kind of, it, it became, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how much this, sort of comes across in the film, but it was something we, we got pretty interested in was, you know, as filmmakers is like, oh, this is also kind of about us. Like, you know, the, the images we put out into the world shape the brains of the humans who watch the televisions and that then informs what they think a scientist is. So mm -hmm. like it matters who we put in our movies, um, you know, and, and it really matters <laughs> what, what people put in the movies that you know, hundreds of millions of people see. Um, we're not there yet, but well. you will be. You never know. <laughs> so, Ian, I wanted to ask you about uh, the cinematography. So, the film opens with this really great aerial shot of the ocean and the waves crashing. Um, why did you frame that opening scene on the ocean the way you did? Yeah, I mean, Sh Sharon and I both um, both worked with our um, our cinematographers, and in that case, a, a drone. Uh, you know, pilot who, who, who's based in San Diego. And um, I mean, I think thematically, you can imagine why we might use a shot of, of a scientist standing on the shore, uh, looking out at the horizon. I think it, it, it immediately, it can sort of play double duty. And I think it does in the film. Um, it's sort of the opening and the closing. 
it's both looking into the past, you know, looking at, you know, watching these waves crash up and it's sort of an emotional, you know, I think we've all gone and, you know, or at least many of us have gone and just sort of stared at the waves when we're upset um, and kind of think stuff through. So it kind of, you know, it was a pretty, pretty easy way to access that. Um, happens to be also where Jane does her research. So it, it, it worked really well as kind of, this is her and her place of science, but, but thinking about back on her experience of science. And then of course, at the end of the film, I think part of what we're playing with there is this, this idea of like looking out at the horizon, you know, like where, you know, where do we go from here? Like, um, so I think that um, the, the visual language of the film was, was, a, was really challenging for us um, because many of the stories that, you know, were being recounted happened in the past. Very, you know, it's very hard to film somebody discriminating against somebody else in a, in a laboratory setting. The camera, what did the, 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 the social, I don't know, the socializing effect or something anyway, like, because the camera kind of makes people behave better. So as soon as we show up, everybody's like on their best behavior. So we grappled with this question of like, how do you actually shoot this film? Is it just, you know, um, so it, it, I think the visual, I'm prattling on too long, but I think the visual language of the film became as much about trying to evoke the uh, a mood and a tone and a, and a sense of what our, our three main characters were going through emotionally as it was trying to say anything super literal. Um. So last question um, from me. Uh, so this film uh, is in many ways incredibly painful to watch. Um, Sharon, in one interview, you said, quote, uh, I felt both sympathy and raw indignation that women have had to deal with these same issues over and over again. So with indignation on one side, mm -hmm. what about this story gives you hope? Mm. Yeah. For me, yeah, making the film was was really hard. It was challenging because, you know, not only to hear these stories and to be in the position of a director, like we, you know, we're behind the camera and we're we're completely empathizing. We can't <laughs> we can't come over and give you a tissue or, you know, give you a hug or, you know, it's it's very much like um it's a weird situation, you know, when you're trying to talk about stuff like this um, as a, like, and also trying to make sure that you're capturing the, the moment. And um, so I, I'm trying to, sorry, what was your, your question again? Sorry, uh, just, you know, ran around. No. <laughs> um, just what gave you hope? Um, um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What gave me hope? I mean, I, I also, I have to say that like, as a woman, you know, who is from science, but who is in the media, which also has the same issues, just like literally every other industry um, everywhere. Uh, I felt very encouraged. I felt like I wasn't alone. And like all of the problems that I've dealt with, which are admittedly not, you know, not as many, not as bad, um, kind of more on the 90% the of that submerged part of the iceberg. Right. Um, I just felt like, okay, like if these top, you know, brilliant scientists are dealing with this stuff, I, I mean, thank goodness that I'm not alone and I'm not crazy, <laughs> you know, and then seeing not only these um, really emotional, really personal stories from these women, but seeing that data, um, which is also hard to see, you know, knowing that like, oh, you can have the same exact resume. And if it says John or Jennifer at the top, you're going to be treated differently. And so no matter, like whenever I'm sending out a CV and trying to get a job, I think about that. And, and unfortunately that's just how it is. And I guess I'd rather have my eyes open yeah. and know about this stuff and know that I'm not alone. And then just really like one of the main messages of the film is like, you, you should talk to other and like talk to, to allies too. Like, um, like I, I talk to Ian all the time about, about work and jobs and, you know, ask him for advice just because it's, it's like, it's so important to talk about this stuff. And um, I think for a long time, it's just sort of this taboo to talk about money and, and, you know, career and, and, and just, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's really like 
our Achilles heel and we need to just get over that. And, and so that's, you know, a big message for me was like, oh, we can do this. You know, we can really change things if we can come together. Um, and so that's where I feel the most hope, I think. Um, thank you. Um, and now for the best part, um, we get to turn to the audience. So um, I'm just going to scroll down and um, look at a few questions that we have for you. These are curated by um, the Carsey Wolf Center in advance um, or as they're coming in. I don't know. So first, were there any portions of the storytelling that you wanted to share in the film but could not, obviously, without disclosing anything confidential? Oh, yeah, I mean, so much. I mean, you know, one way to look at this is for a film, we, I mean, this film, I don't know, probably shot 200 hours of footage and the movie's, what, 90 minutes. So that's that's kind of putting a number on it. But um, but certainly by topic, absolutely. There were, there, were, there were stories of, you know, powerful stories of groups of women who, who came together to, to change their institutions. Sharon's directing a, a short film now about a group of women at, at Dartmouth who, mm. who, uh, who successfully sued the university um, uh, after horrendous experiences there. Um, and the, the history of women in science, you know, we, we really don't go into very deeply in the film at all, but spend a lot of time trying to under, understand that and kind of unpack it. It's a fascinating story. Um, and terrible and um and and really insightful and I, I think all of those all of those stories that aren't in the film do end up informing the final film that we make so it's not mm -hmm. that it was all for not shooting those interviews but um but it hurts to um to exclude them uh, another big one the last one i'll mention is is um it's just kind of more of a survey of, of men in science, you know, trying to figure that. out like, you know, what, what, what are all the men thinking? Mm -hmm. um, and we puzzled over how to do this and we, we, we came up with kind of a crazy way to do it, which was like sort of vaguely replicating how a social scientist might do a survey. We made like a uh, a list of all the major research universities and then used a random number generator to pick 10 of them. And then we made a list of all the people who appeared to be men at those universities sort of best we could do. Um, and then used a random number gener generator to, to generate a list of them. And then, and then we emailed them and said, hey, can we you know, interview you over Skype um, for, our, for our film about the culture of, of, of science? And, um, you know, and to their credit, a small number of, of men wrote back and we conducted these interviews and they were fascinating. But, um, but you know, I think it was probably pretty skewed. Like a lot of the men who wrote were like, you know, surprisingly um, eloquent on, on issues of, of inequality. And um, although it also was like heartening to hear. So um, anyway, that's a whole like another film in a way yeah. that we kind of didn't get to include it in this one um may never see the, the light of day but yeah well we want to see we, we have to do like a director's cut or whatever they right. call it with all the extra, the extra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and sharon i i want to pick your brain all about this new film you're working on because this is in neuroscience right this is an area yeah. that's, that we know all about from anyway yeah yeah we'll, we'll do um, that offline <laughs> it'll or, come yeah it's it's going to come out at some point this fall i think it's oh, like great. 13 or so minutes long so it's a short film okay fantastic um, but yeah it's we're really excited about it. Very cool. Well, I, I selfishly have so many questions, but I feel like I have to honor the audience. So um, the next <laughs> question, um, uh, let's see. Um, this person says, I left my postdoctoral position despite being awarded an NIH fellowship because my entire stipend went to pay for childcare and I was only spending one waking hour a day with my toddler. The data shared in the movie that no women who had taken family leave had been tenured at MIT and that time doesn't make me think that having childcare or family leave benefits would have kept me on a tenure track career. Did you see any examples of institutions that have implemented models that make it okay to balance work-life challenges? Hmm. Who's doing it right? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. That's a stumper yeah. for me. It's a really, it's exactly right. It's exactly mm -hmm. the right question because 
Um, and, 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 you know, maybe the silver lining, one of the silver linings of this disastrous era is, is, is some of that coming into focus in a new way um, on an institutional level. And, and even going to the point of like sort of, I don't know, unpacking the whole tenure thing and like what, you know, a lot of people talking about that, but sorry. Yeah, I don't have yeah. an institution. That... What about internationally? I mean, did you get a, your film really focused on three American scientists, but do you get the sense from talking to them that, you know, even at the country level, state level, that um, other people are doing it better or is this pretty across the board? We did. I mean, we were, we really were fascinated by what's going on in other countries um, in terms of how, like, or, you know, in terms of gender discrimination or non-discrimination, because it does vary a lot from country to country. Um, there, like, for instance, in um, Italy, apparently there, I forget where this came from. It was like, there was a woman who was, uh, was she a mathematician like a couple centuries ago? Or was she like a an astronomer or something? I forget what her discipline was, or maybe she was a physicist. But there was a woman who, like a couple of centuries ago, was like a brilliant, you know, I think she was in the math physics space. And so from that point, you know, in Italy, it's just sort of like, oh, well, women are just really good at physics. And that's just sort of how it is. And so um, subsequently, they have more physicists who are women in Italy than they do in like most other countries. Wow. And it's really just interesting that it's like, oh, yeah, if you just if it's just sort of part of your culture, you know, the same way, uh, unfortunately, here people say, oh, well, women are really good at communicating or they're really good at art, but they're not very good at math. You know, you see the opposite effect, although that's been changing over, you know, as as we're putting more energy into, tr you know, kind of getting women and girls excited about math um, at a younger age. But yeah, so so we've seen that in terms of like cultural, I guess, I don't know, influences, but I don't, we didn't really look, I mean, and this is also, you know, just because it was this short film or this 90 minute film and we know we knew we couldn't get into all of these topics in such detail. So we weren't looking yeah. at childcare um, internationally, uh, but yeah, we know that it's an issue obviously. So somebody should. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And a last question from the audience. Um, so your choice of the song in the end um, credits Never One mm. Thing mm -hmm. uh, fit the theme so, so well. The women can be scientists, women, mothers, etc. How did you find it? Or was it something you both already had heard? <laughs> that song is actually, um, so it's a friend of mine who wrote that song. Um, her name is May Erlewine, and she's a musician in the state of Michigan, which is where I'm from, or where I am currently um, in my cabin. And yeah, so she she wrote that song, and that was very much the intention. It's, um, but but you know, we were we weren't settled on that song until pretty pretty far along at the towards the end of you know finalizing the film, and we just. I don't know, we, we considered a few different songs and that one just stood out for that reason. Okay, well, it um, pains me to do this, but um, I think we're, we're hitting up against the hour. So once again, I'd like to give my heartfelt thanks to um, the guests and the audience for coming today. Um, and I wanna end with a quote from Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast, um, in which she writes, Whatever is lurking will fester whether you choose to look or not. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. Whatever you are wishing away will gnaw at you until you gather the courage to face what you would rather not see. Ian and Sharon, thank you for creating a film that helps us see the world more clearly and gives us a clear call to action. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's been yeah. such a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.